Today's sponsor is the Catnip Calico. The Catnip Calico is a mother-daughter duo who make cat toys in Portland, Oregon. Shop owners Laura and Cassidy opened their Etsy shop in October 2021. Both Laura and Cassidy have been fostering kittens for cat adoption team since 2011 and have always enjoyed making blankets and toys as comfort items for the kittens to take with them to their forever homes. One of my favorite things about the catnip calico, besides the insanely cute toys, is that Laura and Cassidy donate a portion of their sales to local animal rescues in the greater Portland area. Laura and Cassidy choose a different rescue every quarter to donate their proceeds to. They've donated to Cat Adoption Team, Northwest Animal Companions, and Hazel's House, and they've chosen Meow Village as their recipient for April through June. And of course, we can't forget to mention the amazing toys themselves. Winston has the Rainbow Cloud, a Crinkle Cat, a Mermaid Cat, a couple of mice toys. She's pretty much got everything, and they're all filled with catnip. She's absolutely obsessed with the toys, and I find them all over our house. Laura and Cassidy are truly talented and crafty. Their cat toys are ridiculously cute and well-made. And our listeners can save 15% off with our special discount code, WINSTON15. Head over to Etsy and search the Catnip Calico to find their shop. We'll also include links to their Etsy shop and their Instagram in our show notes. Today's sponsor is BEPD Shop. Melissa is the owner and creator of the shop, as well as a wife, mom, and all-around boss babe. She has two 10-year-olds, a boy and a girl, and they're the loves of her life. Melissa has been into stickers her whole life, even before she started planning. BEPD was started in 2015 with a focus on true crime stickers. You could say that she was the OG true crime sticker shop. Her love for true crime, the unique and eclectic, really shows through her creations. BEPD Shop is participating in the Subculture Syndicate sale from April 28th to April 30th. During the sale, everything in the shop will be 25% off. Melissa has given our listeners a special discount code to use when you shop. True Crime Cat Lawyer 15. That's True Crime Cat Lawyer 15 to save 15% off your order. We'll include a link to BEPD Shop in our show notes. Welcome to True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, and sometimes my cat Winston joins me. This podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome back to the show. For this week's episode, we're covering a case of excessive force in Portland, Oregon. The Portland Police Bureau is notorious for its use of excessive force. It's one of the worst police forces in the United States, especially when it comes to dealing with people who are in mental health crises 
or have mental health issues. And that's what we're covering today. This is the case of Erin Campbell. On January 29, 2010, Sherry Stewart placed a 911 call to ask for a welfare check on her niece, Adriana Jones. Sherry told the 911 dispatcher that she hadn't been able to get a hold of her niece for over an hour. Obviously, this fact on its own isn't incredibly alarming, but it's what Sherry told them next that raised alarm bells. According to Sherry, her niece had called earlier in the day after her boyfriend, Aaron Campbell, had come to the apartment. Again, according to what Adriana told Sherry, Aaron had put a gun to his head and tried pulling the trigger four times, but the gun wouldn't fire. Adriana said Aaron was suicidal and she was worried about him. Earlier that day, Aaron's brother Timothy lost his battle with heart and kidney disease. Although Aaron had threatened to harm himself, Sherry was concerned because not only was her niece inside the apartment, so were her niece's three kids. The final piece of information Sherry relayed was that Aaron allegedly wanted the police to kill him, a sort of suicide-by-cop scenario. Officers arrived at the Sandy Terrace Apartments and met Adriana in the parking lot of the complex. Adriana told police Aaron was quote-unquote despondent and she saw him put a gun in his coat pocket. While Adriana was outside talking to police, she sent Aaron a text asking him to come outside. According to police, Aaron texted back and allegedly mentioned something about bringing his gun with him. At that point, officers took Adriana's cell phone so they could communicate with Aaron via text and phone. Keep in mind, Aaron was still in the apartment with the three kids. So at the forefront of officers' minds was keeping the kids safe and making sure nothing bad happened to them. At around 5.33 p.m., the three kids came out of the apartment. None of them had been harmed. Aaron remained inside the apartment. At least two witnesses would later testify that Aaron walked backward out of the apartment at around 6 p.m. According to these same witnesses, Aaron was complying with officers' commands, including placing his hands on his head and then putting his hands straight up into the air. There's some confusion about whether Aaron stopped complying at some point or started yelling at police. Aaron still had his back to police with his hands behind his head when an officer fired a non-lethal beanbag round at him. According to police, Aaron wasn't following commands, so they used the non-lethal beanbag rounds. Witnesses said Aaron kept his hands behind his head until the last beanbag round hit him in the back. Instinctively, Aaron reached a hand around to his back where he'd been hit. Aaron then started jogging back to the apartment. Officer Ronald Frashauer then fired one shot from an AR-15 rifle, hitting Aaron in the middle of his back. Aaron collapsed to the ground. He was unarmed. An investigation into Aaron's death was opened after the shooting. The Internal Affairs investigation took place in February 2010. At the center of the investigation were the actions of Officer Ryan Luton, who fired the beanbag rounds, and Officer Frashauer, who fired the fatal AR-15 shot. The Internal Affairs investigation had three allegations to address was the use of deadly force by Officer Frashauer within Portland Police Bureau policy and training guidelines, was the use of less lethal force by Officer Luton within Portland Police Bureau policy and training guidelines, 
And was the response by Portland Police Bureau personnel, quote unquote, tactically sound and within the Bureau's policy and training guidelines? The investigation took several months to complete and included interviews with the officers in question, as well as other officers on the scene. In his initial interview with Internal Affairs, Officer Frashauer stated that he and his partner responded to the call at Sandy Terrace Apartments because dispatch had requested an officer who was trained in operating an AR-15 to come to the scene. Frashauer had completed the basic 50-hour AR-15 operator training and explained that AR-15s allow for more precise targeting than a regular handgun. Frashauer explained that AR-15 operators are often dispatched to scenes where the call is quote-unquote high risk or there's potential for the use of lethal force. Prior to arriving on scene, Frashauer reviewed all of the dispatch slash 911 call information that was available. He believed Aaron was armed and suicidal, possibly homicidal, and his girlfriend and three kids were inside the apartment. Frashauer knew that Aaron had attempted suicide earlier that day. Frashauer seemed convinced that he was walking into a possible hostage situation because of the kids being there. This feeling was reinforced by notes saying that Aaron had threatened suicide by cop. When Frashauer arrived on scene, he positioned himself across the parking lot, off to the side of the dumpsters, near where the canine dog and officer were set up. Frashauer witnessed the kids coming out of the apartment and watched them go with officers to safety. Shortly after this, Frashauer saw Aaron come out of the apartment. According to Frashauer, Aaron was walking out of the apartment in a, quote, very quick and determined manner, end quote. This was odd to Frashauer because he was used to people in the same situation leaving, quote, very methodically and slowly, end quote, because they don't want something bad to happen. In other words, they don't want to be shot by police. Frashauer, as the AR-15 operator on the scene, zeroed in on Aaron as soon as he left the apartment. He was focused on Aaron with the AR-15, and he could see enough of Aaron to know that his hands were on top of his head. According to Frashauer, he could hear that the officers were giving Aaron commands, and Frashauer could allegedly hear Aaron yelling back at the officers, although he couldn't hear what the exact words were. Frashauer said the tone of Aaron's voice was, quote, aggressive, hostile, defiant, and loud, end quote. It was around this time that Frashauer saw Officer Luton shoot the beanbag rounds at Aaron. According to Frashauer, this is what happened next. After being hit with the beanbag rounds, Aaron took a, quote, half-stutter step forward, end quote, but kept his hands on his head. More commands were directed at Aaron, and Frashauer claimed that Aaron didn't comply with them. Aaron was shot again with a beanbag round and immediately took his left hand off his head and, quote, shoved his left hand deep into the back of his waistband, end quote. According to Frashauer, Aaron reaching into the back of his waistband wasn't like someone reaching for their wallet, and it wasn't like Aaron was trying to pull up his pants. To Frashauer, it was more like Aaron was reaching into the back of his pants to pull out a gun. This opinion was based on Frashauer's training and experience in which firearms were hidden in similar locations. According to Frashauer, Aaron started quote-unquote running towards his apartment. Frashauer was absolutely convinced that Aaron had a gun in his waistband. So before Aaron could quote-unquote take cover, Frashauer shot him once in the middle of the back. Aaron collapsed to the ground in front of a row of hedges out of sight. 
In his recorded statement with Internal Affairs, Frashauer reiterated that he thought Aaron presented an immediate threat of death to both Frashauer himself as well as the other officers on the scene. As for Aaron's response to the non-lethal beanbag shots, Frashauer perceived his running not as running away, but instead as running to a spot where he could shoot at police. When asked in hindsight whether he could have approached the situation in a less risky way, Frashauer responded, no. Quote, Based on the totality of the circumstances faced by Officer Luton, including the information available to him at the time, Luton's use of his weapon to gain Aaron's compliance in raising his hands from behind the head position was inappropriate to achieve the desired outcome of raising his hands straight in the air. Luton's continued use of the less lethal shot against Aaron was based on Aaron running away and Luton's desire to stop him. Less lethal operators are taught that less lethal munitions can be used to achieve compliance when a suspect is violent. Aaron wasn't displaying any intent of aggressive physical resistance. Aaron only ran after being fired upon by Officer Luton. Officer Luton had other options available to him, like de-escalating the situation, engaging Aaron in conversation, having Aaron drop to his knees, or remain still so he could be approached by officers and taken into custody. End quote. Internal Affairs determined that Officer Luton's use of the non-lethal rounds was inconsistent with Portland Police Bureau training. As for Officer Frashauer, Internal Affairs reviewed the Portland Police Bureau policy for use of deadly force. The policy states that deadly force can be used to protect officers from what they reasonably believe to be an immediate threat of death or serious physical injury. All of the information Frashauer had when he arrived on scene suggested that Aaron could be a potential threat. The problem with Frashauer's response to the situation was that he never considered any other interpretation of Aaron's actions. Aaron was in a mental health crisis, and he hadn't directly threatened any of the officers who'd been called to the scene. According to Internal Affairs, quote, Officer Frashauer clearly demonstrated an inability or willingness to change his mindset, even though the situation appeared to be de-escalating and there wasn't a significant or immediate threat, end quote. All of this to say, the internal affairs investigation felt Frashauer's use of deadly force was outside the Portland Police Bureau policy. Following the internal affairs investigation, disciplinary action was taken against both Officer Luton and Officer Frashauer. On November 8, 2010, a little over seven months after the investigation, Officer Frashauer was terminated from the Portland Police Bureau. And just to be clear, this was disciplinary action within the police department. This had nothing to do with any criminal charges for the death of Aaron. So the termination letter itself had a lot more details and information in it about the night of Aaron's death. First, there was a lot more information that Frashauer had access to before he arrived on scene. He knew the call was a welfare check. He knew that Aaron was suicidal, with no mention of any homicidal intent. He knew that Aaron's brother had died that morning, and he was very distraught because of this. He knew Aaron was flagged in the system for domestic violence, and he knew there were several other officers already on scene. When Frashauer actually got to the apartment complex, he received even more information about the situation. 
For example, one of the sergeants told everyone over the radio that Aaron was being compliant with police's commands. And despite Frashauer's perceptions, other officers and witnesses said that Aaron came out of the apartment at a slowed pace and he stopped at least twice in response to the commands of officers. Consistent with the IA report, it was clear that Aaron didn't pose a threat that would support a decision to use deadly force. There was a huge list of 19 reasons why. The initial call was a welfare check, meaning that Aaron wasn't suspected of committing a crime, nor was he wanted for committing a crime. This also meant Aaron was distraught and in need of mental health assistance, especially since he'd been reported as suicidal. According to higher-ranking officers at the scene, the communications between them and Aaron were positive in nature. Aaron didn't directly threaten police, nor did he come out of the apartment with a weapon. Although passively resistant, Aaron was substantially compliant with officers' instructions. None of the officers at the scene saw Aaron with a gun or any other weapon in the back of his waistband. According to the termination letter, Frashauer, quote, failed to recognize, ignored, or was otherwise distracted, end quote, from taking those factors into account for his decision-making. The most glaringly negative part of the termination letter was the call-out of Frashauer's, quote-unquote, rigid and inflexible approach to the situation. Frashauer perceived Aaron as a threat from the minute he took the dispatch call to the moment he shot Aaron in the back without taking into account any of the mitigating factors against an actual threat existing. The Bureau thought that Frashauer's internal affairs interview also raised a lot of concerns. Frashauer never considered the possibility that Aaron was unarmed, and Frashauer refused to concede that Aaron could have had a pain reaction to being shot in the back or the buttocks by a beanbag round, and that that was the reason why he had reached into his pants waistband. Despite receiving updated communications on scene from the officer in charge, as well as the kids being sent out of the apartment unharmed, Frashauer continued to be unwilling or unable to adopt his mindset or adjust it to account for a de-escalating situation, meaning that both non-lethal and lethal force wouldn't have been necessary. Quote, There's evidence Frashauer steadfastly remained focused on absolute threat control to the purposeful exclusion of participating in the information sharing, group planning, and decision making, and coordinated action that officers are taught. End quote. A grand jury was convened and met over several weeks to determine whether Frashauer would be indicted on any criminal charges in the death of Aaron Campbell. Aaron's girlfriend, Adriana Jones, was one of several witnesses to testify. She told the grand jury she'd known Aaron since 2008 and they had two children together. The apartment at Sandy Terrace was in Aaron's mom's name, but Adriana was paying for the apartment and Aaron no longer lived there. Aaron would still come to the apartment, though, to take his oldest daughter to the bus or spend the night so he could spend time with the kids. In the past, Aaron had been abusive and or violent to Adriana. Before the night of Aaron's death, Adriana hadn't seen him for a few weeks. Adriana found out from other people in Aaron's life that he allegedly spent some time in a mental hospital after swallowing a bunch of pills. He'd also been drinking heavily up to the night of his death. Aaron told Adriana he was depressed and he felt bad that his brother was dying. Adriana thought she could talk Aaron out of killing himself, but she also said he'd consumed a lot of alcohol the night before and he was taking his brother's death really hard. 
On the night of Aaron's death, Adriana didn't really witness anything that transpired. As soon as she came out of the apartment, police immediately started questioning her and then eventually took her cell phone. She asked police if she could go back inside the apartment and get her kids, but police wouldn't let her. She tried to explain to officers that Aaron was quote-unquote fine and that her kids weren't in any danger. She told them Aaron would never hurt her or the kids. Once the kids came out, they were taken with Adriana to a gas station parking lot down the street. Adriana's dad, Courtney Jones, also testified before the grand jury. He came to the apartment on the night of Aaron's death because Sherry told him that Adriana and the kids might be in danger. Courtney witnessed Aaron walking backward out of the apartment before being told to disperse, and Courtney went into a neighbor's apartment. Courtney heard shots outside and walked to the window of the apartment. At that point, Aaron was already on the ground and officers were still giving him commands. Three other witnesses, neighbors who lived in the apartment complex, also testified about what they saw on the night of January 29, 2010. Kenneth Boyer testified that Aaron had his hands on the back of his head and then walked backward toward a patrol car at a quote-unquote normal pace. Boyer heard several officers yelling commands at Aaron, and one officer had told him to get down on the ground. Boyer said Aaron's hands were still on his head when the first beanbag shot round was fired. According to Boyer, when Aaron reached back with his left hand to rub the left side of his back, it was a quote-unquote natural pain reaction. He wasn't reaching for an object in his waistband. Boyer said Aaron was jogging back to his apartment and rubbing his back when the lethal shot was fired. Another neighbor, Robert Montgomery, basically testified to seeing almost the exact same thing as Boyer. The only slight difference was that Montgomery described Aaron as quote-unquote walking fast back toward the apartment after being shot with the beanbag round rather than jogging. The final witness was Ryan Pinnell. He didn't hear any of the specific commands that officers gave to Aaron or any of the things Aaron allegedly said. What he did see was Aaron standing still, facing away from the officers with his hands on his head when the beanbag shot was fired. From Pinnell's vantage point, the beanbag round was fired, quote, without anything else happening, end quote, as far as he could tell. He described Aaron as, quote unquote, sprinting back toward the apartment before he was fatally shot. Officer Frashauer also testified before the grand jury. He testified that he'd been a police officer for eight years and received special training and certification to carry and use an AR-15 rifle. Frashauer testified he had dealt with a lot of suicidal people slash people going through mental health crises, and he knew, quote, suicidal people can be irrational, they can be aggressive, unpredictable, and they can be homicidal as well as suicidal, end quote. Frashauer claimed that when the kids came out of the apartment, they had to reassess the situation and make some, quote unquote, very quick decisions. Almost as soon as Aaron walked out of the apartment, Frashauer had his gun pointed directly at Aaron. Frashauer again claimed Aaron's tone when speaking with officers was very hostile, aggressive, and loud. And to Frashauer, that tone meant he was being non-compliant. Frashauer doubled down on his claim that Aaron wasn't just reacting to being hit with a beanbag round. Quote, it was deliberate the way he reached down. He didn't arch his back as if it hurt. End quote. There was purpose for what he was doing. Frashauer testified that he had no choice except to shoot Aaron in the back. 
it would have been, quote-unquote, inappropriate to wait. Frashauer's testimony was clear that he didn't see a gun at any point. But Frashauer clearly saw Aaron as a threat. Quote, he wasn't running away. He was preparing to shoot the police. He wasn't just trying to get away and not be arrested. He was a threat to the police, end quote, which also meant he was a threat to Officer Frashauer himself. According to Frashauer, it was simply his job to take out the threat, which was Aaron. Ultimately, the grand jury said they couldn't indict Frashauer on any criminal charges. In a rare move, the grand jury wrote a letter explaining their decision. They made it clear that the decision not to indict didn't mean that they felt like Frashauer was innocent or that they agreed with his decisions, nor did they think the whole incident itself was without flaws. Quote, After much discussion, we realized we couldn't indict for emotional reasons. This was very difficult for us as a grand jury, as our sympathies lie with the Campbell family. End quote. The grand jury expressed outrage about Aaron's death and said he shouldn't have died that night. The grand jury felt Aaron's death, quote, resulted from police policies, incomplete or inappropriate training, incomplete communication, and other issues with the police effort, end quote. They characterized this as a 911 welfare check gone wrong. Quote, ultimately, the largest failure by the Portland Police Bureau was this. The decision to use or not use deadly force was left to one individual, Officer Frashauer, an individual who may have been incompletely trained for this type of situation and overtrained in other areas. Portland deserves better. Aaron Campbell deserved better. End quote. Aaron's poor mother Marva had to make arrangements for a double funeral for her sons. Marva eventually settled a wrongful death lawsuit for $1.2 million. She asked for the money to be held in a trust for Aaron's kids until they were adults. In February 2010, shortly after Aaron's death, an alliance of black church leaders, the Portland City Councilor, and Police Commissioner Dan Saltzman asked Senator Ron Wyden for help bringing a federal civil rights investigation of the Portland Police Bureau. The U.S. Department of Justice launched an investigation into whether the Portland Police Bureau's use of excessive force had become a pattern or practice, particularly for those individuals with mental illness in June 2011. After an 18-month-long investigation, the DOJ found that police encounters with the mentally ill, quote, too frequently resulted in a higher level of force than necessary, end quote, and police used tasers in situations when such force wasn't justified or they used tasers more times than necessary on individuals, all of which resulted in the unconstitutional use of force by police against those with mental illnesses. The DOJ and the City of Portland came to an agreement in 2014 about how Portland would address the issues and correct the constitutional violations. The city agreed to revise its use of force policies for mental health crises, including de-escalation techniques, especially for welfare checks, increase capacity for crisis intervention with specially trained officers, expedite misconduct complaint investigations, and create a community oversight group. The city had to attend periodic reviews and hearings to address whether they were in compliance with the agreement. In February 2020, right before the pandemic, the city of Portland came into full compliance with the DOJ agreement for the first time since 2014. 
However, quote, years of progress quickly unraveled during summer 2020's racial justice protests revealed significant gaps in the police bureau's adherence to its own directives, end quote. In 2021, the DOJ went back and reviewed Portland's compliance and said the city was no longer in compliance because of the way Portland police had responded to protesters. So, basically, six years of work was undone in one summer. Last year, the DOJ and City of Portland started negotiating additional clauses to their 2014 settlement agreement in response to the 2020 protest issues. The biggest issue the DOJ wanted to address was the use of body cams for officers. Portland is the only large city in the U.S. that doesn't have a body cam policy. Negotiations continue on this issue. Aaron Campbell's story is one I wanted to share for several reasons. First, it's incredibly heartbreaking to know that someone could be gunned down simply for having a mental health crisis, rather than being offered help. No one with a mental health background responded to the welfare check for Aaron that night. What he truly needed on the night he died was someone to talk to. I understand there needed to be some kind of element of securing the scene to make sure Aaron wasn't going to hurt himself or anyone else, but ultimately, he just needed help, and that was never given to him. With Mental Health Awareness Month right around the corner, this case also serves as a reminder that we need more social acceptance of mental health issues and we need a better response for welfare checks. A crisis response team has been created in Portland, and so far, they've seen a lot of success with the pilot program. Hopefully, this is something that can be implemented on a broader scale, and hopefully mental health can be something that receives more funding in the future. I want to dedicate this episode to Aaron Campbell, his mother Marva, and his kids, as well as the rest of the Campbell family. Aaron didn't deserve to die that night, and he should still be here raising his kids, and spending time with his mom. If you or someone you know is going through a mental health crisis, please contact 988 to reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. You can call, text, and chat that number to be connected to 24-7 free, confidential support. We'll also link this information in our show notes for this episode. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. The links for our social media pages are included in the show notes. You can find our discussion group on Facebook by searching for True Crime Cat Lawyer in the group section. And if you want more content, head over to Patreon to join one of our available tiers. You can get monthly mini and bonus episodes as well as early access to our main episodes. Finally, if you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at WinstonTheCatPDX. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.